The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. You can support the show by clicking on the donate button on the website or in the show notes. This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Use the offer code CANDIDFRAME at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. For me, and a lot of you, National Geographic was THE magazine when it came to photography. Though Life and Look magazine had it today and helped inspire generations of photographers, it's Nat Geo that established the benchmark for anyone aspiring to make not just great photographs, but photographs that persist in your psyche long after that particular issue of the magazine disappeared from the rack. When I think of photographers like Jody Cobb, Bill Allard, Sam Abel, Joel Sartori, and many others, there are images that just pop into my head. They have found a home in my mind. That's photography at its best. And amongst all that company, David Allen Harvey is one of the best. The way he wields a camera is nothing short of amazing to me. It's not just the way he uses light and color and composition. He uses them all like a true virtuoso. But he tells stories in a way that leave me feeling like they were stories that I needed to know, that I wanted to know. He's just amazing. He's David Allen Harvey. Um, th- thanks for doing this. I, I'm, I've been really excited about having the chance to talk to you. Well, it's a pleasure, and I, I like uh, radio interviews better than any of them. I find, actually, that radio people have um, a special flair that I certainly don't get with TV people, and uh, not always with print people either. So I've had good luck with radio, so I'm hoping this will be the same. Well, I hope not to disappoint. I thought I'd, I'd start off talking to you about your youth because you, you suffered through polio uh, when you were a child and you've talked about it and you've described it as being a time where you felt very alone and isolated and I was hoping you might be able to take us back there and describe what that experience was like. Yes, I think it kind of is the basis for uh, everything that I've done since. I think that uh, uh, it was a physical disease, potentially life-threatening and uh, crippling and or crippling. But when I got out of there after three months of isolation, uh, I think everybody thought, okay, David was lucky he survived. And in fact, I did survive the physical, potentially physical traumatic after hospital time. Uh, Could have been permanently crippled, for example. But what nobody thought about back in the day uh, was the psychological trauma that I must have suffered. And I didn't even, of course, realize at the time how bad that was. But when I look at it now, it must have been something unbelievable. Uh, I was six years old, strapped to a board so for physical reasons. They wanted to stretch out my muscles. Mm-hmm. But the end result was small room alone with not doctors or nurses wanting to come and see me really because I had a potentially communicable disease. It was it was panic uh, yeah. in the early 50s. So they did uh, the medically correct thing. They took this little boy, six years old, who had a potentially communicable disease and put me in solitary confinement. I mean, that's what it was. I mean, I don't know how else you could describe it. And uh, no, uh, maybe if I'd have had an iPhone, it would have been a little bit better. At least I could have communicated, I could have sent text messages out. But no, I, and nobody really to explain it to me because, again, no internet, no texting, uh, no, well, no telephone either. Uh, and the only thing that would happen is that maybe every once in a while uh, a nurse would come in and word would come to her that my parents were standing downstairs below, below my window that was, I don't know, maybe three or four floors up, not too high, not too low. Anyway, and I could I could just wave to them. Mm. Couldn't even talk to them because the, the window either didn't open or they didn't open it. I don't know what. But anyway, I just had to look at them through the glass and that was it. Then back to the board. 
back to the bedpan, back to the shots of penicillin. And uh, uh, so that couldn't have been a good experience. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, you know, I, I, so I, who knows? I mean, I, the only thing I had, they would send me books, but they would bake those books uh, for my own protection. So they would come in literally with burned pages or pages that were like oh, wow. parchment. I could all, once I flipped the page, they would break off. So anyway, I, reading was clearly the only escape that I had literally was reading, you know, and I would get magazines, I would get books, uh, and uh, I think they even set up a few uh, comic books and things like that. So anything they could get to me, they got to me, uh, but it got, as I say, <laughs> it got physically baked in some kind of a <laughs> sterilizing machine. Uh, that was my life like that for a couple of months, and then I was moved into a ward with others uh, afflicted with polio, and then I really realized, and until then I didn't even really realize what I was up against, because I wasn't getting any news or anything. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what was going on. And there I saw kids in iron lungs. Uh, Morris, the, the guy in the bed next to me, died right there on me. I mean, I'm talking to Morris one minute and the next minute he's gone. And so then I saw the extents of it. So then I, that's when I realized what I was up against. And that's, and then I was doing swimming pool therapy and that sort of thing. Anyway, the point is I was very lucky. I got out of that. Yeah. Uh, but it, that wouldn't take too much of a shrink to figure out that I must've been a little bit messed up after that. Uh, even though everybody thought, that I'd miraculously survived, which was also true. So the medical part came out good. The psychological part, you know, probably I'm still dealing with it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. Why wouldn't that be right? <laughs> but I, I think one of the, I think one of sort of one of the, I guess, positive things from that is that it has, to my perspective, informed so much of your work because even from your earliest work, it seems like you have gravitated to themes of family. And community, um, that that has proven to be something that's really important in your work. I mean, one of the first things you started doing when you started photographing in your, I guess, in your preteens and your teens was, was your family. Um, tell us about that. Well, that's right. I think, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure that I was incredibly uh, insecure at that point. And, uh, but as you pointed out, it was also lucky because I had an opportunity uh, that some kids don't have and that I was able to completely get in inside myself, right? In a, in a very unusual way. And, uh, and family was, was all that I had. It was all that I knew anyway. It's all that anybody knows at that age. Then we, we moved from, uh, Denver, Colorado, where I, where I had polio and we moved to Virginia. We moved to a house very much like the house where I'm living right now in the Outer Banks. In any case, it was all family there, too, because we were – my dad always wanted us to be somehow in some uh, special place, and so he moved us to the far end of Virginia Beach. He was in the uh, uh, Navy at that time. He was an Iowa farm boy who had gone to World War II and just stayed in. And uh, so I had woods and dunes and the sea and uh, maybe a, a couple of friends in the neighborhood, but I spent – Hours, hours, days, days alone uh, in the woods or at the beach or with my family. And so the ages from like 6 to 14, I, I had all that time to think, you know, and to use my imagination. And like all kids, you know, you don't need much when you're a kid. I mean, kids have got everything these days, but as you know, uh, you don't really need anything. I mean, if you have a little backyard 10 by 10, you can create a whole world. And uh, But I actually had a lot of woods and a lot of dunes and a lot of swamp and a lot of snakes and turtles and beach. And, and it was just a incredible place to, uh, to think. And so I spent hours there. So you take the polio time and then you add that to all this incredible time in those formative years between 6 and 14. And I spent all that time by myself. Uh, and making stuff up in my head, you know, I play, I made games up in my head. I pretended I, you know, I'd read about Robinson Crusoe. So I pretended I was Robinson Crusoe. Uh, you know, I pretended a lot of stuff. 
I mean, it's a wonder I didn't go into uh, acting because that would have probably been the other way <laughs> that I could have gone, actually. But the, but the magazines uh, and books that came to me when I was in the hospital had a profound effect. And so by the time I'm in the woods alone and thinking, I'm also discovering photography and built a little dark room uh, in a little addition that we had to the house that was Actually, a maid's quarters. Yeah, everybody had a maid's quarters in their house in Virginia at that time. That's another another segue into all of this. But in any case, um, family was uh, really all that I had. And being separated from family at six, it's not hard to imagine that that would be the thing that I would be wanting to get a hold of the most, yeah. uh, both then and now. One of your earliest projects was on the um, the Liggins family in your in your early twenties, and it was um, a, a sort of a personal project in which you focused on a black uh, black family. And yeah, there's Lois. I'm going to have her in this interview. There's Lois right there. Oh, okay. There's Lois Liggins at age seven, and she and I text and talk, and I've had her up on the stage. And Lois is my buddy now. She's. 57. So we met when she was a little girl, and uh, I was a young boy, actually. And now she's uh, 57, and she's a social worker in the same uh, neighborhood. She lives about three blocks from where I shot the original story. Well, for people who are not for, who are not familiar with the story, why, why don't you tell us uh, about it, which resulted in your first in your first book, Tell It Like It Is. Yeah, that was, uh, yes. Well, that's one of the all-time... I've got a few all-time great personal stories. This is not the only one, but it was the first one. First of all, I'm in Virginia, which was a segregated community. There were restrooms for black people and there were restrooms for white people. My family came from Iowa uh, and they were Iowa farmers. And of course, my grandfather, I mean, I remember he came to visit and he was shocked uh, by this uh, segregation. So... You know, I grew up in a completely middle class, about half, well, I guess some of the people in my neighborhood, they were working in the tourist part of town of Virginia Beach, and the other half were military people, but they were from all over the United States, these people, the people of Virginia Beach. And so it wasn't, it was the South, but, and it was part of the South, and I could see that there was the South, but there was actually a lot of input from people who had traveled. Anyway, I knew right away from my grandfather that, uh, this uh, inequality wasn't the right thing. It wasn't the way my family was. It wasn't how we thought or how we believed. There was nothing good about it. I would notice on my bicycle delivering my newspaper, which, and I used those funds, by the way, to buy my, my first Leica, which is sitting right over here. Uh, but I would uh, do my newspaper route, and all the black women would be lined up down Atlantic Avenue waiting to get picked up by a bus to take them home because they had been maids all day long. Now, this was These were middle-class people that had maids, but everybody had a maid. And so the only black people I first saw uh, were maids. We had a maid, Dahlia, you know, and we would go visit Dahlia at Christmas time. But my parents weren't rich. We certainly, it just was one of those things that, that uh, uh, everybody had somebody who would come in and clean their house for them. They would pay them. They would take them home. They'd visit them on their birthday. We, everybody became friends. But nevertheless, I saw that there was this great uh, inequality. SeaTac on the other side of the railroad tracks in Virginia Beach was where the black people lived. Uh, Virginia Beach High School, Virginia Beach Junior High, where I went, was all white kids. Uh, I don't think there was one black kid in our school. And I knew that something wasn't right. And subsequently, after that, I had moved to Ohio. And I was now the other thing that happened in that same period, right before Tell It Like It Is, was that I went from an all white middle class community in Virginia Beach to a community in, in Ohio in a steel mill town in Ohio where I was basically the only white kid. <laughs> I flipped the whole thing. I was with Italians and Poles and black kids. And these were my friends, and these were the guys. I, my best friend became a black uh, boy who was in my, I don't know, I guess I was 14, something like that. And Wayne, uh, I can't remember his last name, but I remember his first name. And Wayne was my buddy because he was interested in photography too. And in shop class, we had a, a dark room. 
so I could process and, and, and make contact prints at school. And Wayne and I shared uh, a friendship over photography. Of course, he lived on one side of town. I lived on another. But, you know, I had my little moped, and I'd ride over to his neighborhood. So I knew something, uh, something was not right. And uh, so that's how I got involved with Tell It Like It Is. Uh, uh, this was, I was 22, I think, when I started it, or 23, 22 or 23, I can't remember. It's recorded somewhere, yeah. everywhere. And actually. you were living with a family for a short period of uh, a time. Yeah, and, yeah. And how did you, yeah. How did you get introduced to them and how did you sort of, you know, find your way into their lives and into their home for that period of time? Well, uh, there was a, there's, a, there's a producer in all of this and Charles Hoffheimer, who was uh, a rich kid, is the best way to describe him. Well, there's a lot more to him than that. He was a rich kid, but with a sense of social justice also. He... He wanted to join the Peace Corps. We were against the Vietnam War. We were we were pro Martin Luther King, the Civil Rights Movement, gay right, gay rights, women's rights, the same stuff that we're talking about now. Shit, we were we were on top of it back then, and we thought we were on top of it. We thought we were going to solve it. As I say, when I shot Tell It Like It uh, Is, Martin Luther King was alive and rocking and rolling. And so was the hippie movement. We were going to end the Vietnam War. Black people were going to be equal. We had it all. We had it all together, right? Uh, Martin Luther King was killed four months after Tell It Like It Is was published. Tell It Like It Is, by the way, precedes uh, East 100th Street by five years. And it was Bruce Davidson who told me that mm -hmm. when he came to a show I did one time. I always thought years later, I thought I'd been influenced by East 100th Street. But the timeline doesn't match. I did Tell It Like It Is first, five years before. <laughs> um, anyway, I uh, I had no mentors, no teachers of photography at all. I'm totally self-taught photographer. Well, self-taught by reading a lot of books. So I'm taught by all my mentors were either writers or coming from the pages of the classic works of Robert Frank, Cartier Bresson, and these guys, Eugene Smith, and Life Magazine, and Look Magazine, and National Geographic. So I was absorbing everything I could get my hands on about photography. But still, I never met another real photographer. I never, you know, didn't have any personal contact with anyone. And Charlie got the, the idea that we should try to save this neighborhood in Berkeley, in Norfolk, Virginia. He thought, he thought like I thought. As I say, he was a rich kid, but he was a rich kid with good, there's rich kids with good ideas. They're not, they're not all like we might think they would be. Anyway, his family was very altruistic. And he didn't actually do anything except he got his father to pay for the printing of the book. And he also had gotten in with the boys club in uh, what we called the ghetto back then. And he made the initial contact and with the local Baptist church. And But he and I had been friends. Matter of fact, he stole my girlfriend uh, early in college, <laughs> Charlie did. <laughs> but we were friends anyway. And we're still friends now. The, all the same people are still in place 50 years later. It's amazing. Uh, anyway, so I thought, well, I'll go in and, and do something, but I had no idea what I was going to do. Uh, and I met um, uh, Callie, the mother of uh, the Liggins family, and she and I just hit it off, and she had, a, she had some spunk and some pizzazz, and, and she was kind of keen on the idea, and she liked me, and I took a couple of pictures, and I went into my little darkroom and I developed them and I brought them back to her the next day. And then one day led to another day, led to another day. I mean, you don't knock on a anybody's door and say, Hey, I'm going to spend a month with you. Right. You can't do that. And I knew that instinctively, but what happened was that I would stay and shoot longer and longer. And Callie said, well, why don't you just sleep here on the, the sofa? And I thought, yeah, well, that's a great idea. I'll do that. And that's what happened. I mean, this apartment was only two bedrooms, and they had seven kids. And so, oh wow! Uh, and but the living room was empty. I was the only one in it, and they had little curtains between. So, ever the kids, I don't know. I I didn't actually see that scene. I never, you know, once it was nighttime and they went to bed, I didn't bother them, mm -hmm. right? But the kids must have all been piled in about two beds. That's all. They, and some of them must have been with mom and dad too. It was an intact family, by the way. Uh, Robert, the father, he was a little bit distant compared to everybody else. But, you know, I hung around. I mean, if you look at the photographs and tell it like it is, you can see I wasn't just walking by. Right. I mean, there's no way. No, no. 
you know, I got Robert getting up in the morning with a hang. His only bad habit at that time, he, was, he might drink a, a bottle of Jack Black or, no, nothing that good, something worse. <laughs> and <laughs> But he had a job. He had a job. He was at home at night. You know, he'd come in later and, you know, like I say, he would might have a little bit of a hangover and not be in such a good mood in the morning. But I worked around that. He never, you know, he certainly allowed me to be there. Well, if the woman of the house allows you to be there, you're That's there. It. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, what I like about this work and so much of the other work, and I think you've talked about this uh, as, as much, is that when you have, you know, a white middle class photographer who comes into an environment like that, they can often focus on the things that are dramatically different from their own experience. And so they'll focus on the po poverty or on the crime or just the things that are a surprise and a shock to them. And then the work becomes more about them than the people that they're photographing. And I think that your work is the antithesis of, of that. And, uh, and I'm wondering how that experience ends up informing some of the work that you've done subsequently, because you've always explored, you know, cultures from, you know, hip hop culture, to uh, life in the favelas, it 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 pervades all your work, and I was hoping you could talk to a, talk to us a little about how your experience has informed your perspective in terms of how and and how you photograph. Well, you can just kind of you can see how it happened, right? If you look at if you look at somebody's life and you put it in a tight little box, it's easy to see. Polio leads to isolation, leads to family. And then my first exploration out of family is with a black family, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can just see how that all worked. You can see how that led to Divided Soul and to hip-hop and everything. Uh, all of the uh, significant work that I've done, I think, is based on those two things. Focusing on my family in the beginning, focusing on the Liggins family, which led to everything else. And now they're all connected. Uh, now they're all interconnected uh, in, uh, in an amazing way that was just a combination of fate and uh, dealing with that fate, like we all have to do. We're dealt a particular hand of cards. For sure, my instinct was, as soon as I made friends with Callie, my instinct was to stick with Callie to stick with that family, not to try to do the whole neighborhood. So my instinct is what I tell my students to do all the time, make a, make it a, make a microcosm, the whole thing, rather than trying to do this huge thing. So I've done huge topics, but I always reduce it down to the lowest common denominator. And for one thing, you know, I think uh, deep, deep down, I'm, I mean, I appear extroverted because I've had to communicate with lots of people. I've had to do things like I'm doing with you now, but deep down inside, I'm still introverted. I always looked at the camera as a way to hide, as a matter of fact. Like the camera, for me, was a way to look out at the world without being visible myself. Mm -hmm. I was photographing other things. I wasn't Cindy Sherman. I was photographing other people maybe putting my own thoughts into it, but through those other people, whether it be my own family or the, the Liggins family. I actually photographed the Liggins family in more depth than I did my own. I mean, I did my own, but uh, when I was photographing and living with the Liggins, you know, I was deep, deep, deep into the zone. I knew that, uh, uh, that this was going to be something that, would uh, make make my uh, mark in photography. And as I say, it was the first experience outside of my own family. You know, I took my own family seriously, but you know how it is with your own family. <laughs> you're, 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 you're assuming that there's got to be something, <laughs> something better out there somewhere, right? <laughs> so, uh, no, the combination of the civil rights movement and my sense of where I could go as a photographer uh, all happened, you know, at once. I mean, a whole bunch of things just happened at once. So it was polio, then alone, then tell it like it is, and then everything else after that. The irony of this is, uh, is that, <laughs> the irony of this is the two best things that I've ever done, and I'll never do any better, are my original family album and tell it like it is. I mean, I can't do better than those two things. That's it. I mean, I can do different kinds of things. Mm -hmm. 
I can do spinoffs like based on a true story. I can do Divided Soul. I've got things coming up. But in terms of purity, no, no. How could you? No, 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 no. Listen, I have worked on purity my whole life. I've actually been able to keep my own personality the whole time, you know, through everything. Very few, if any, uh, compromises. I mean, I had to work for the man, so to speak, at National Geographic, but I was very selfish about the way I did that. I did it my own. My, I really did. I really did do it my way all the, all the way through. And I got that confidence, and I knew that that's the way I would be after I did Tell It Like It Is. I said, okay, this is it. I'm, this is the way that I'm going to be. You, you did an internship at, at National Geographic, and you're known for a lot of your work there, but you did an internship which didn't turn out the way you might have expected initially. No, that's another uh, another very important part of the story. It's maybe that's also a key. There's about four or five keys, and that's definitely one of them because I, uh, I had had early success as a photographer from the time I was 12, and I started printing pictures. You know, I would either win, I, I belonged to a camera club of old people you know, 20s and 30s and 40s that I won their contest on my first try when I was like, I guess, 13, I guess. And then, um, you know, uh, I was college photographer of the year. And so I got an internship at the Geographic and they gave me a test shoot, which I failed miserably. I mean, the uh, the famous rejection letter, the telegram, telegram, opened the telegram from Bob Gilka, director of photography at National Geographic. And I'm up in Cooperstown, New York, where I've been shooting, and I sent all the film to Geographic, and he reviewed it. It came back, Dear David, you are young and strong, and that is good, but what I have to tell you will mm -hmm. make you feel sick and old. And he was right about that. I did feel sick and old. For about five minutes. For about five minutes. Self-pity was not something that I was into, you know, having been through all this stuff. And I thought, you know, wait a minute. He didn't like those pictures. I failed at National Geographic, which to me was like a big break, you know, at, at uh, 22. And uh, But I expected the big break. I figured I deserved a big break, and I got it, but then I failed with this rejection letter. But I was only down for five minutes. I mean, I had, again, parents who always told me to get back up on the horse. So I got back up on the horse psychologically right away, and it was easy. It was really, really easy because... I thought, wait a minute, he didn't like those pictures, and I hated those pictures. <laughs> he doesn't like them, and I didn't like taking them. I didn't like being a National Geographic photographer. I was doing all the stuff that I thought they wanted. I kind of caved. Mm. You know, I had an artistic mentality before that, and I had an artistic mentality after that. But I caved on that first National Geographic assignment, and I failed. But then I thought, wait a minute, what did I fail at? I failed at doing something I hated doing. Didn't like color, uh, didn't like shooting uh, stupid tourist pictures for National Geographic anyway. And, you know, I sold myself down the river. I hated myself for that first half of the summer. You know, I didn't like anything about what I was doing. So I thought, well, so this is great. And then Charles came along at about the same time. And, then I, and so there was a month of summer left. And so I lived the rest of that same summer with the Liggins family. And when we got this book printed, I sent it back to Bob Gilk. I said, Bob, thank you for the opportunity, but you're absolutely right. National Geographic is not for me. Uh, this is the kind of work that I need to do. And I sent him tell it like it is. I got a nice note back. David, this is fantastic, Bob. So, but I was criticized. You know what the criticism for that book was at the time? What? Criticism was, great book, but you didn't show the poverty. <laughs> mm -hmm. You didn't you didn't make it look like a poverty situation. That was the criticism I got from some of my colleagues at the time. Yeah. But so you're right. It's not about poverty. It's just about it's about the same moments. How about mom getting ready for church and dad in bed with a hangover and the kids all hanging out there? I mean, it's not a good picture. I mean, it's just a picture. I just stood there and took the picture. But <laughs> Robert Sr. is in bed holding his head and mom is getting ready for church. And mom went to church alone, and I went with her. <laughs> yeah, it's because for people who, who grow up like that, they don't see themselves as being in poverty. I mean, the parents no. may be aware of their of, of the difficulty in raising, you know, oh, seven and no, nine kids. No, but I, no, that's right. I I, I talked to Lo Lois, and I have had many many conversations, and she's pictured in the book, and she's got a little hole in the bottom of her shoe, 
And I asked her, I said, what did you, what did you think? I mean, did you think you were living in the ghetto? She said, no. No, we were fine. We had places to play. Everything was good, you know. So, you know, no, she wasn't uh, aware at the time that somehow she was in a in a disadvantaged community. And, and I went to school with the kids and sp- spent there at night and learned black people language. There's a body language. There's a it's black people and white people are different from each other. It's just that they should be treated equally. <laughs> they are different. Yeah. Come on, we know that. I mean, my, I've spent more time with black people than I have with white people, I think. So I know there's a big difference, but uh, I've always been comfortable ever since, whether it be uh, the Dominican Republic or Grenada or Trinidad or Cuba or wherever I work, uh, hip-hop, uh, in every kind of situation, I'm comfortable uh, with black people. I don't try to act like a black person. Are you kidding me? No, I'm a white, middle-class dude. I don't try to be anything else. But I've always been comfortable with black people because of Cali. Callie, just her. She took me in, and uh, Lois, the daughter now, she and I are friends now, and uh, yeah, they made me feel comfortable at home, and uh, that's the way I've felt uh, ever since. Did you know that the computer that people use most frequently and more often is the one that slips into their pocket? It's not the desktop, or the laptop, or even the tablet. It's the phone. You know that thing you occasionally make a phone call with? That thing. We check our email, we browse the web, we Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and a bunch of other things that I have no clue about. That's our world. That's how we discover things, especially photography. That's the way we look at pictures and we experience a website. And if you're a photographer whose website only looks great when displayed on a 27-inch monitor, well, you are already behind the curve. Because it's the 5- and 7-inch screens that people are using to discover who you are and what you do. But Squarespace has the solution. Because your Squarespace website looks good on any platform, any device, without you having to put any more effort and time in. You don't have to do a separate version of your site or hire someone to do it for you. It all happens automatically, and it looks great. Find out for yourself. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. You know, you just said something really interesting about uh, your, your work at National Geographic about you made the mistake of photographing what you thought somebody else wanted. Yeah, never did that again. <laughs> and a big part of what you did at National Geographic was pitching your ideas in terms of what you wanted to, to do. Tell me how important was it to, to be able to say, this is what I want to do and how I want to do it. Because you're famous for, for uh, one of the few black and white stories that was published in National Geographic, and you speak to the idea that you've kind of favored black and white for a, a good amount of the time. Tell us about the importance of being able to stick to your guns in terms of what you wanted to do and how you wanted to do it, especially in a publication like National Geographic. Well, you know, after I failed that first time, I thought, well, I'm never going to fail again in my life doing something I didn't want to do and then have that be a failure. I thought, if I'm going to fail... I'm going to fail doing something that I thought was absolutely fantastic. And then I'll swallow that too. But the last thing I wanted to do was to fail doing somebody else's thing. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, I expect to fail. I mean, I was all set up for failure. I I started out ready to die. Are you kidding me? So everything's icing on the cake after that. And then I started realizing early on with Tell It Like It Is that if I stuck by my guns... I wasn't hard to work with. I wasn't difficult at the newspaper, but I absolutely wanted things in a particular way, but I was nice about it. And, you know, and I saw that I got to know all of the editors and, and, uh, well, I like people naturally. I'm curious about people. I give everybody a break unless, unless I really get screwed over and then I get seriously disappointed about human nature. But, you know, my mom was always the type, my grandfather too, to assume the good of everybody first. And you do get burned. You do get burned being that way. 
And sometimes I get just discouraged being that way, but it's just the way, it's just the way my family, it's my genetic uh, inheritance. So yeah, this, all of this stuff is a stew, artistic stew. It's all, you can all, you can see that it's a recipe for the way that I would work. And it's, again, I, I pitched my own ideas to National Geographic. I got my own way artistically. One of the, by the way, I didn't get my own way by declaring myself an artist. I got my own way by just doing my homework, by knowing more about the Chesapeake Bay and the fishermen and the watermen for my first story than anybody at National Geographic. I mean, it's not hard to read a lot of stuff, right? And then uh, I found it wasn't hard to do basic homework, and I found it wasn't hard to go spend time with people so that I became... I just ended up knowing more about the topic than they did. And they, but I didn't, I wasn't arrogant about it. I didn't say that out loud. They just knew that. And so I was able to have a strong influence on the editorial flow and how it got laid out and everything, you know, which I'd also learned from being at a, had a good newspaper, I mean, a good mentor at my newspaper in Kansas prior to that. So that all added up to me understanding the typography and design and the community where I was working and having a, a vast knowledge of all the things that were going on in the community, not just focused on what Dave Harvey thought he should do as an artist. Yeah. What I love about your work is, is on, on multiple levels, there's, there's a storytelling level. You know, you may not have become uh, a writer, but in many ways, or an actor, but so much of your performance manifests itself in, in, in your photographs. But there's an aesthetic beauty to your, your images as well, especially compositionally. I just look at your images and I just linger on them for forever, just taking them, taking them in. But, you know, when you're working for newspapers or you're working for National Geographic, you know, the primary intent is to tell a story. But I'm, I'm wondering how you sort of struck that balance between being able to succeed narratively with a body of work, but also be able to create singular images that are just wonderful uses of light, of composition, of form, of gesture. You know, how... how do you sort of do you compartmentalize or do you get to the point where you're just everything is very synergistic? It's I, I get in the zone. I get in the zone. I get in a zone. I get in a magical place. Uh, I'm not quite sure how I get there. I not, never studied meditation officially, but I, I get into some kind of meditative state where I'm completely nirvana relaxed and I'm working really, really hard at the same time. Uh, and this is uh, a state that I can just somehow get in. I, I really don't know how I get in it, to tell you the truth. But I've been in it enough time to know that it is uh, a desirable place to be. I can't get in that mode every day. I can get into a, a little bit every day, but I can't get all the way in deep every day. I can only do that occasionally. But I'm always practicing the piano, so to speak, every day. You know, Andre Segovia, the guy, uh, classical guitarist, who I met in Spain, uh, who was already the world's most famous classical guitarist, told me that he practiced playing guitar eight hours a day. And I said, why do you need to practice playing the guitar eight hours a day? He said, I just do. I can't be good if I don't practice. I got to exercise every single day. So I do that too. But I had the, the composition and this confidence that you're talking about to push my agenda forward at magazines is all related simply to uh, reading a lot of writers and looking at a lot of paintings and, and reading about how they did it. It was So, I mean, I saw that they were all single-minded, from Faulkner to Hemingway to Sinclair Lewis uh, to Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Every biography that I read, everything that I read about painters and writers, those two in particular, uh, led me to believe that that's the way they were, that they were very single-minded. Uh, they had a, an artistic agenda that was usually based on uh, uh, something in their life. You know, artists need to fill something up. I had the, the required insecurity to be able to do that, which turned out to be a good thing. So that's just the way I, I looked at it. And the only thing I changed about the complete artistic mentality was that I had also I had a good work ethic from my family and I had a good ethic of how to treat people from an early age from my family also from my parents. So I 
didn't want to be arrogant, and I don't think I am arrogant. And um, I, but at the same time, I have certain things in my head that I want to make sure happen, but I make it work out so that it's not bad for anybody else around me. In other words, which is what I learned from my Japanese roommate who did the layout for Tell It Like It Is, by the way. My Japanese roommate, I studied Eastern philosophy with him in college. And so this Western idea of I win and you lose wasn't with me anyway. And then even magnified by having my Japanese roommate who was an artist and got me into the uh, art, got me really into art history, which I wasn't into prior. And so the combination of all those things, I learned how to get my agenda through without destroying anybody or stepping on anybody or making anybody feel bad. Yeah. I would just make it so that the whole thing was, hey, this is the best way to do this. Look for these reasons. Let's put this here, use this picture here, this caption here, and it will all make sense, right? Mm. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> it was I just, you know, I just had it together so that uh, you know, I always worked with the writers at the newspaper. You know, I just decided that it was better to not be an asshole (laughs) (laughs) and that you could actually get your way uh, and still be somebody that people enjoyed working with. So Mm -hmm. I I tried that. A lot of the artists that I read about did not do that. Uh, So I thought maybe I was a little bit less of an artist for being that way, but that's the way I am. Well, you're a member of Magnum alongside some wonderful and legendary photographers like Elliot Erward, uh, Cornel Kappa. And I'm, I'm wondering how important has it been to be in a community, again, we're going back to community, but a community where you're amongst people who are on the top of their A-game. How important was that to, to the, your development as, as a photographer to be surrounded by people whose work is so exceptional? Well, that's an, a magnum is another key point. Uh, some people would look at my career, put National Geographic as a key point, and it's a sub-key point in my in my mind. It was uh, it was terrific. It gave me a worldview, great education. But uh, and for the average person walking down the street, National Geographic is the brand, right? That's where you would want to be as a photographer. But I knew that I had to go uh, to another place. And um, Magnum is a family, also, right? And it's a but Magnum is really a group of individuals, and all the things that you said about them are true. They've made a mark in history. So when I saw that photographers like Henri Cartier-Bresson were taking pictures on the street that were in magazines that were later hanging on the walls of the Bibliothèque Nationale or the Museum of Modern Art, and in the Library of Congress in the form of a book. You know, I've been raised on books. So these guys were doing it all. They were the only ones that I could see. I didn't see it at my newspaper. I didn't see it at National Geographic. I didn't see it anywhere else. I didn't see it even at Life Magazine or Look. Magnum had another thing going. And they still do. Uh, I mean, they're an art movement that's been around like now for 70 years. So it's probably the end of it. These movements don't stay around forever. But, no, I'm really, really, really happy that I uh, uh, got to sit at the table with those guys. I do sit at the table with those men and those women. we got some incredible young women coming into uh, uh, Magnum, and uh, Magnum is not perfect. And I quit my fraternity in college. I quit every other club that I ever belonged to after a very short time. I, I don't like clubs but I do love Magnum because it's not a club. It's some kind of a group of individuals that sort of defies everything else. And those, those, those men, those women really do um, have a place in the history of photography. So that's one group that I'm uh, uh, very pleased to be a part of. They're always doing something new. You, you're, only, you're only good for about... You know, you work really hard, you do a new book in Magnum and you put it on the table and you get about five minutes of good boy, or maybe not. Maybe they say, this is a piece of shit, yeah. you know, get it out of here. <laughs> they could. I mean, I've seen that. So, uh, but no, it's all about the work. It's the work, the work and the work. And Magnum, uh, at least as an artistic community, definitely lives up to its billing. 
And of course, it also lives up to his building of being always in trouble business-wise, which they always are. But they're kind of like me. They kind of don't care. They, they don't really care about the business part, not, and me neither. You know, we're just looking for survival. We just want to be able to go do our next best project. And we got to figure out a business way to do that. But do you think the Magnum guys are sitting there trying to think how to get rich? You got to be kidding me. No. <laughs> and me neither. No, no, no. I, no, no, no. I survive. I like, matter of fact, I like survival mode. Comfort mode is no good. The only good mode is struggle, survival. That's the only good way. Mm. You've either got to put yourself out, you got to put yourself out to that edge, otherwise nothing good's going to happen. David Allen Harvey, he's fantastic, isn't he? Conversations like this one were the reason why I started The Candid Frame over 10 years ago. I wanted to sit down and talk shop with photographers just like David. Photographers who inspired me to pick up a camera and attempt to say something beautiful. But I didn't want to be selfish and keep those conversations to myself. I knew that there would be others hungry to hear the same thing I was hearing, people just like you. And we want to keep bringing you great conversations with great photographers every week, and we're asking you to help us make that happen. We've just launched a Patreon effort, which allows you to support the show with regular monthly donations of $2, $5, $10, $25 or more, or anything in between. It's the means by which I will be able to dedicate most, if not all of my time to providing you access to the world's best photographers. Now we have some modest rewards to offer you when you donate, but I'm really asking you to help us because you really believe in what we're doing and you know how special this is. Where else are you going to have access to these kinds of conversations with photographers and hear conversations that aren't canned, oft-repeated presentations paid by some manufacturer who wants to sell you something? You're not. This is it. As far as I'm concerned, this is the gold standard, and I want to make it so much better. So I'm asking you to take the time right now to support the show with your monthly donation and be part of what we're doing here. Of the thousands of people that listen to the show every week, I'm hoping that 500 people will say they love TCF enough to be part of something special. Visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame right now and join me. Thanks. I wanted to talk to you about some uh, some more recent work, and that includes the work that you were doing with the South Korean women. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I thought that that was something I knew nothing about. Yeah, and me neither. Not yeah. So, tell us about that, and especially from the perspective of someone who has been photographing communities for so long. You know, because this because you're in your early seventies now. Yeah, I'm seventy. Well, I'm, I'm, if, if once you're over 70, 70, you can't remember how old you are anymore. <laughs> God works in great ways. You know, Mother Nature works with you. Trust me. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm 70. I'll be 72 next month. Okay. Okay. So here you have all this, all these decades of experience photographing, doing stories, focusing on community. And here you have an opportunity to do something um, that's not been done much before, if at all. But I'm wondering how you how it felt like to to do this story, but how all that experience and all the stories you've done before helped you to approach this really unique experience. Yeah, the the Henyo, uh Well, first of all, you know these women are nothing short of inspirational in themselves. I, I don't speak Korean. I don't plan to do any big projects in Korea. Although I, they do invite me every year, they give me some big show, and they treat me like a king. Uh, so I've actually done a reasonable amount of, of work in Korea. Well, all over the East, actually. Anyway, uh, yeah, the, but they were a family too. I mean, you know, they were the, the there were different groups of women, and these are women who are 80, 85, who've been doing this since they were 14, and they're free diving down 30, 40 feet. Like little mermaids. I mean, they're on, on land, they're old ladies, but they get in the water and they're mermaids, right? They're, it's just unbelievable. They're, they look like teenagers when they're kicking down. And I went underwater with them, uh, which is not my thing. There was nothing about this that, that was be, 
I, I probably wouldn't go to Korea where I'm not invited. Uh, so it's one of those things that wouldn't have, I, I probably wouldn't have done that on my own. But I'm so glad I did it. But the other thing is, is it was a commission from the Arts Council of Korea, and they'd invited me in for shows, and they're always so polite, so nice, so sweet. They put it, they lay it out there for you in a way that you can't refuse. Do it any way you want. Yes, do it in black and white. Yes, 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 you can control the layout on the book. Yes, you can do the show. So, I mean, there were no reasons not to do that project. And it took me away from Rio de Janeiro and the Latin beat where I usually am and into an opposite thing. But again, I told you I, I was early influenced by the East anyway. You know, I've worked in Vietnam. I've worked in Japan, Thailand, every, every place in the East except the Philippines, where is the one place I haven't been. But I've worked everywhere in the East and Southeast Asia and East. So um, that's a part of me that that I tap into, uh, that I've tapped into a lot. Anyway, these ladies were nothing short of inspirational. I was shooting black and white, uh, and it was a very tight family kind of a situation. And again, I didn't speak to them in their language, but somehow language just becomes absolutely unimportant. The body language, body language is everything. You know, when you're, when you're on a boat full of 30 women, <laughs> it's all... <laughs> Maybe you're better off not being able to say a word. You know what I mean? <laughs> I think I was, I'll tell you the truth. I think I was in, uh, I think I was in the perfect kind of situation. They could imagine what I was thinking. If I actually said something, I'm sure I would have said the wrong thing. I usually do. Well, you, you had complete license on this, on this job, but there are other times when you can, you can be faced with very, very a lot of limitations and restrictions. And I'm wondering, where do you strive, where do you feel like you are in your element when, when you have complete license or when you're dealing with some severe limitations in terms of having to produce the work? Uh, I think both things are good. I think both things are good. Uh, limitations are not really limitations. I mean, you, uh, you could decide that this print up here on the wall is too small. You know, what if somebody said, okay, you have to make an, a photograph 8 by 10? Uh, no, I think some structure, some limitation actually gives you a, a, a way to use freedom, maybe in the very best way. If you don't make a decision on a format, a size, a structure, if you don't do that, you're not going to have anything. Every guy sitting at the end of the bar is a great philosopher, right? No, no, no. You've eventually got to get it done. You got to get it done. So you know, I'm right brain sided in one way, and left brain sided at least enough to get stuff done. So having some kind of a structure doesn't doesn't really bother me. But I, and I don't, I can't think of anything lately, or even maybe ever, where I really actually felt that I was limited. Mm. I don't ever feel limited. Uh, national. I mean, I did a couple of stories for National Geographic that would not have been my first choice. But again, it was like the five, it was like the rejection. It lasted for five minutes. So I, you know, I went up and did a Canadian freight train story that wasn't my thing. But then, of course, the first thing I looked at it was a great opportunity to be out in the West, driving a train like I'd always wanted to do as a kid, enjoying the people in the uh, in Saskatchewan. So yeah, I mean, I. I, I don't. I don't really ever recall feeling like I was overcoming limitations on anything. Yeah, as you've mentioned multiple times during our conversations about you know books being really important to you and the the printed page and part of part of your story is Burn magazine. And if you could talk to us about why you uh, you know co-founded the magazine and why it's played such an important part in your career. Well, uh, it's well. Burn has evolved beyond anything I ever thought of. As a matter of fact, my whole career evolved way beyond my wildest dreams. So I had dreams, but then things always got even. They went even further out there in my experience. Well, one thing that happened was that I was very self-educated uh, by the time I was in high school. I mean, I had a pr more knowledge than most kids about photography, and I'd done more. Not, I wasn't smarter than them. I just worked at it longer. By the time I got to college, 
I realized I was even kind of ahead of most of the professors. I didn't say that, but some of them really hadn't really done their homework. And I was getting A pluses in class, but that was easy. And so the, the, you know, the classwork was just something that I could do pretty easily. And then I was out working on bigger things. Uh, but I saw that my fellow students in grad school in particular and undergrad school too, I could see that they just hadn't read as much or hadn't done as much, didn't have as much, uh, I don't really like the word experience, but they hadn't, they hadn't, they just hadn't had the opportunities that I had had in terms of books and, and practice. Let's put it that way. And so I started, uh, you know, helping my fellow students in school and particularly in grad school. And because uh, some of them were struggling and, you know, I won the big contest. I mean, they can hate you for that or you can put your time into helping everybody else out, which is what I did. So I was always and my mom was like that. My mom was a teacher. Yeah, I came from a family of that, you know, basically believed in helping uh, people who were less advantaged than, than you. So it was it was probably wired into me from an early age from my my parents and then I could see that I could be of benefit to others. And I didn't feel I was insecure from polio psychologically on some level, but I was very, very, very secure with myself artistically from the very beginning. So I didn't feel like I had to hide things. I didn't feel that some, that I had secrets for success that I couldn't share. You know, I instinctively had the payback, pay forward mentality long before I ever heard that slogan. <laughs> and uh, in, in any case, so that so that when magazines started dying, National Geographic started dying. Anyway, the the twenty two year old graduate school thing. I started teaching when I was twenty two. By the way, I started teaching. Didn't tell like it is. Was also a student all at the same time. So I've been teaching mentoring ever since. While I was working, I don't even have time to do this stuff. I don't know. It's crazy because I'm working all the time on my own thing. But I still think I spend 75% of my time this morning before I'm talking to you. What have I done? I've talked to three people who need help with their project. Now, I don't even have time to do this. Sometimes I think, what am I doing? I should be concentrating on my own work. Mm -mm. But it's too late now. <laughs> I'm already into it. Now, if you can figure out how to get me out of this, very next, I'll be very happy. But I think there's no way out. I think there's no way out. Well, anyway, so I'm seeing young people. I'm talking about eight, nine, ten years ago when I started Burn, uh, which I didn't start to do. I mean, I actually just had a little blog called Road Trips that uh, uh, somebody at Magnum suggested I do. They said, you, you've probably got an audience out there. I said, no, you know, I think, you know, I know that National Geographic has a big audience, but I didn't see myself as having a personal audience. But I started a little blog called Road Trips, and all of a sudden I had a bunch of followers, and I thought, damn, this is weird. And then, but some of the discussions that I had with uh, these followers, because I talked to them every day, I'm talking to everybody on road trips. And I realized that they didn't have uh, an opportunity. The young ones didn't have any opportunities because the magazines were no longer doing big assignments, newspapers were closing their staffs down. And I thought, well, I wonder if I can do something. So I didn't even have any money. This is, I didn't have any money when I did Tell It Like It Is either. I took my last 400 bucks and spent it on film for Tell It Like It Is. And I just thought I'll do it. This ballsy move. I think I had somehow at the moment $5,000 that wasn't, it was really, I owed it $5,000 to people. But I had the cash for that moment and I just did a typical Dave Harvey stupid <laughs> gutsy thing. And I said, I'm going to give 5000 I'm going to make a grant of 5K for somebody out there. I'll just do it. I mean, I didn't ask any. I know that my kids and everybody else in my family would have advised me against it and all my friends, too. So I took the only 5K that I had and I gave it away as a grant on on, uh, on road trips. And uh, I gave it to and I, I judged it myself. And I gave it to this guy, Sean Gallagher, who I'd never met. And, of course, people complained, why would you give it to him? You know, blah, 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 blah. You know, you give something away and you create more problems for yourself. Trust me, uh, altruism, you got to be very careful with altruism because it can really backfire on you. <laughs> but anyway, but it was, that's what it was. And uh, then after that, I had a few contributors who put more money in. And I've got a few contributors now who put it in through the Magnum Foundation. So we're now able to give away... 
$15,000 every year. It's, it's no longer my money. I only did it the one time by myself, but I've gotten other people to fund it, and it's no strings attached. You know, we don't have anybody. Fuji gives away another five grand, but they don't have any influence on anything. Uh, it's just another $5,000 for some young person under 25, so it's a good thing with no strings attached to it. I don't, I'm not even... <laughs> I don't use Fuji cameras all the time, but uh, sometimes I do. But anyway... So, no, so Burn has been uh, an incredible amount of work, and, and all of us have wondered, why are we doing this when well, we should be concentrating on our own work? But then we get incredible rewards from Burn because some of the people who've, who've gotten this grant have really gone on to do bigger and better things. We've been able to produce a few books, and, and it's too late everywhere, <laughs> and it's too late to quit. That's the other problem. I'm telling you, we no matter where I go in the world, I could go to Japan, I can go anywhere, anywhere in the world, and all of a sudden I've got this entourage of burn fans. <laughs> it's very, very, very strange. And it's kind of moved over to Facebook and Instagram lately. I mean, but I, and so I really can go anywhere in the world now, and people either know me from Instagram or from burn. Oh, More awesome. than anything else. And uh, so, like I say, it's too much work. It's too hard. I don't have time to do it, but it's too late. <laughs> That's funny. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, I, I, I can't help but... Uh, this is slightly out of your parameter. It's not. He's not recently discovered, but he's relatively unknown. Uh, Luke Delahaye, and I love his little book uh, Winter Rice. Uh, and he took a train across Siberia, and he did this book called Winter Rice, which is, of course, uh, the name of a Russian ballet. And I, uh, I, I really think that that this guy is. Uh, an amazing photographer, French photographer, and of course the French invented photography twice. Magnum is essentially a French agency, and uh, you know Luke is is not. I mean, I know Luke, but he's not what I would call a close personal friend. But I think that I think that that book is really, really, really interesting. Very different from what I do, other than the fact that it's diary like, mm. and um, and I love that book. Right now, new photographer in Magnum, Carolyn Drake. Carolyn Drake's work is fascinating to me. I think she's doing some incredible stuff. And I think Matt Black uh, is, yeah. where, where does he come up with a name like Matt Black? That's just <laughs> not even fair. But that's his name. And he looks like his name should be Matt Black. And his photography looks like his name should be Matt Black. <laughs> Do you know this guy? He photographs yeah, poverty. Um, yeah, he, he started out in California. So, yeah, well, I could go on and on and on. There's a lot of great photographers out there. Sebastian List, I, I you know, I, I, um, I appreciate all types of photographers from Gregory Crudson to Matt Black or Carolyn Drake. So I don't have any one type of photography that I endorse more than another. And I myself have uh, gone into uh, the next thing you'll see from me will be actually a book of fiction. I kind of started oh, okay. drifting in that direction with based on a true story. Never put the word Rio in that book because I didn't want people to think that it was supposed to be a treatise on Rio de Janeiro. And Beach Games is all <laughs> Thank fiction. You, <laughs> but I always drew a lot. Last thing, Absolutely. I always drew a lot from fiction. Huckleberry Finn. I read that book fifteen times because it was the it was an adventure story, and then it was later symbolic and dealt with a lot of social issues. Uh, so, um, I really, really, really am interested in fiction. It was D.H. Lawrence who I read The Plumed Serpent before I went to Mexico, for example. I read the New York Times about Mexico, but reading The Plumed Serpent, I learned more about the spirituality of the indigenous that I did from any academic source. So, fiction is all Gabriel Garcia Marquez, A Hundred Years of Solitude. That's who I was reading when I went down and did Divided Soul, and Isabella Allende, and Carlos Fuentes. And, um, well, Divided Soul even comes from, uh, I stole Divided Soul out of uh, 
Jose Camila Sailor's book, Travels in the Alcaria. He talked about the divided soul of the Spanish culture. Because mm -hmm. there we're dealing with Africa, right? Sp Iberia, West Africa, Brazil, and then on up. So divided soul was dealing with the same stuff I was dealing with with hip-hop. You know, involving uh, Spanish, the Portuguese, West Africa, slave trade, griots, Brazil, South America, and then up to the Americas. Yeah. So it's all interconnected. Cool. Hip-hop, Lois Liggins, Callie Liggins, they're all related. <laughs> It's all related. So where can people go to find out more about you and, and your work? Uh, you know, I do a lot. I, I You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm into this social media thing, and I laugh because I really can't. I'm a technical uh, nightmare, and I have to ask people what button to push on my computer. Because of my teaching and the way that I just kind of turned out from childhood, uh, I enjoy interacting with people and... Uh, and I do a lot on Instagram. I don't do my I don't, Facebook. I just I show up on Facebook just because my Instagram pictures automatically go there. Mm -hmm. But because I shoot every day, oh, you know, I, I mean, rarely a day goes by when I'm not shooting my neighbors, my family, my front porch, or the Korean ladies that I'm diving with. Wherever I am, I'm taking pictures. And the only thing I've done on Instagram lately is to put a few flashes to the past because you know I got you know I don't know 380 some thousand followers and I realized, wait a minute, most of these people don't have any idea what I used to do. Mm -hmm. So occasionally I'll throw a blast from the past. I'm doing it now. I put up my first story from National Geographic. I tell a little story. And so people can get some kind of an idea of what I'm doing on Instagram to tell you the truth. And then that would be nice if they use that. Uh, I don't look at Instagram as a final product, but it is a way of, of building an audience, making people aware of my books, my workshops, my exhibitions, and but only 10%, 90% is about other people's work and pictures and books and everything. I save a little time for, for David, but most of it goes to other people. Well, David, thank you for making time for me this morning. I really appreciate it, and, and uh, it was a real thrill for me to have a chance to sit down and talk with you. So thank you for joining us on The Candid Frame. Thanks for joining me. Please remember that you do make a big difference to our show. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store. It goes a long way to helping us spread the word. You can also support the show by making a regular monthly contribution to the show through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash the candid frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and on the candid frame website. I'd like to thank all the people who've recently contributed to our effort, which include Daryl Dearborn, John Clark, Paul Crichton, Christopher Cintron, John Crum, Linda Lane White, Dan Roca, Piotr Dabersky, Thomas Paris, Robert Goshko, M. Nikkei, Roy DeBunzio, Ron Whiteman, Roberta Moloff, Brian Iyer, Thomas Trubitowski, Jens Rode, Oliver Banta, Sharon Zhang, Lisa Osta, Stephen Burry, Sarah Jane Boyers, Ron Donson, Georgios Karamanis, Bato Prosik, John Krill, travel journalist, Bart Hall, and Brian Walworth. You guys are awesome. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Our new senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incombatech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.